The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. We use the English Standard Version here at Doxa, and please follow along with us on the screen. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. We can del- who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was, a great, there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, 
How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of the God, the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This has been the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. So this is our uh, fifth week in our series, In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people in 1 Samuel. And what we're going to see and what we have been seeing in this book is that God loves his people. God leads his people and he cares for his people always in spite of his people, in spite of themselves. He cares for and leads and guides and loves them because the history of God's people shows that there is almost no end, almost no limit to how royally his people can screw things up. And, and that should be good news for you and me today because just as God's mercy and grace we see him continually reign and reel his people back in from them trying to royally screw everything up, no matter how many times he does that, that that's really, the good news is that it's really the same for us. I don't know what your history, particular history in your life is, but I am sometimes or oftentimes amazed at how royally I can screw up my own life and the people around me. I, I, can, I can go into a, an evening with Megan, a, a date night where you know, I really have thought about, it. I want this to be like a really special time with us together and I want us to enjoy each other and have great conversation and connect on a heart level and you know, just be a, a glorious time between us together as a couple and five minutes into the thing, we're in the car pulling out the driveway and we're arguing because something that I said that even as it was coming out of my mouth, I knew like, that's not wise. And it just comes out like, and that's just a small example of how I can royally all the time just royally screw things up and you, just because you're a human, I know that you're capable of doing the same thing, and that is humanity's track record. And in general, and us, each of us in particular, that we find ways to royally screw things up. Even when it seems like you can't mess this thing up, we find some way to mess it up. And so the, what we've seen over the last few weeks is how bad things have gotten for Israel. As they have gotten into the promised land, they've been there for 400 years. As soon as they get comfortable, they turn their back away from God. And as they do, things 
things get bad, things get dark. In fact, this is the ending of Israel's really dark ages. This is the end of their dark age, of their medieval period, if you will. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. We've seen a couple of weeks ago, and we see today that uh, Eli and Eli's sons, who are the priests in Israel, are, are corrupt, his, his sons and Eli himself, they're skimming uh, food off of the sacrifices that the people are giving. They are uh, ignoring God's prescription for how the sacrifices should be handled and how their provisions should come. They are, the, the sons at least, are uh, taking advantage sexually of the women who are serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And no one has heard God basically for about 400 years. So things are pretty dark and pretty tough. And now we really reach the low point of Israel's dark age. Uh, this in this passage, that cheery passage that Carolyn got to read for us is really, this is the, maybe the two, one of the two or three lowest points in the history of the whole nation of Israel. Israel would face uh, in this uh, we see this chapter, we see this like tragedy that happens. Israel would face greater military losses than they do here. Uh, Israel would face greater political losses than they do here. It would suffer greater destruction, physical destruction, than it does here. But this loss represents the most, maybe the most tragic or certainly one of the two or three most tragic events in Israel's history. And this is going to be our big takeaway this morning from this passage. Here's our big, big takeaway. God's presence is our greatest privilege. And therefore, it must be protected above all other things. God's presence is our greatest privilege. And therefore, it must be protected above all other things. And we're going to, to that end, we're going to see three things. We're going to see God's presence, the difference it makes. We're going to see God's presence, how it's lost, and God's presence, how it's recovered. The difference it makes, how it's lost, and how it's recovered. First up, the difference it makes. So Israel has been uh, settled in the promised land for about 400 years, and now for about the last 100 years or more, the Philistines have, they moved into town, they moved next door to Israel, about to the southwest on the coast of Israel, and uh, they seem to have had a pretty uh, strong economy. They seem to have a, they, we think from some archaeological discoveries that they uh, really were masters in the olive oil trade, and they were masters probably in the wine trade. They made a lot of wine, a lot of olive oil, so a lot of parties going on there. And they, 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 they had a pretty strong economy from that. And they had a fairly strong military, at least some sort of strong military presence. We know that because they consistently kick Israel's butt on the battlefield. They are been a bane in Israel's existence. They've been a thorn in their side for over a hundred years. And not just like a, a little problem, not just like your pesky neighbor that keeps like letting like, if you're I'm that pesky neighbor. The raccoons get in my trash can every single night. I've stopped even fighting. I just like leave a sign for them and say, you know, have, have fun. And they, they go in there and they ravage the trash can and they're always leaving trash that gets scattered, not just on my yard, that's okay because I'm okay being the ghetto house of the neighborhood, but it, it gets scattered in my neighbor's yard as well who has an immaculate lawn. And so it's more than just like being bothered like a neighbor like me. It's being bothered by a neighbor, uh, the Philistines who come in, they kick Israel's butt on the battlefield 
and they subject them. They even sometimes put them into slavery. They come in and they, and when Israel is actually in the midst of harvest, they'll come in and they'll steal the harvest from them. They'll uh, kill their men. They'll take their wives and children and put them into subjection and slavery. They'll demand, hey, we'll let you keep your land, but every year you have to pay us a portion. And so this has been going on for over a hundred years now for Israel. It's been a really difficult time. They have tormented Israel. And so now it just seems to be one more of the same. In verse 1 that Carolyn read, it said, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So these are two uh, towns that are about, well, end up being two towns that are about two miles apart from each other. The Philistines drew up against Israel, and when uh, the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, at this point, we see that the leaders of Israel, the elders, have asked a good question, and they have half a good answer to this question. And the question that they ask is, why, verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's the question that they asked. That is a good question because Israel knew that God had led them into the promised land. He led them out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. They had defeated all the different cities and tribes that had uh, filled up the promised land. And God had led them through victoriously against people who were oftentimes stronger and more powerful than they were. In fact, almost every single uh, uh, enemy that we see Israel take on in the early days was stronger and more powerful and richer than they were. And yet God showed up and allowed and enabled Israel to defeat each of these more powerful enemies. And now they find themselves subjected to the Philistines and they cannot shake them. Battle after the battle, they are losing. And finally they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us? There's something going on here where the Lord is allowing this to happen. He is not on our side. He is not overcoming the enemy for us. What is going on here? So they ask a good question and then they have half a good answer in response. That half a good answer is, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They realize, this is the half, the, the half good part of their answer, they realize the problem is God is not with us in this battle. If God was with us, we'd be able to overcome these Philistines. But because God is not with us, we are continually losing. And so they ask the question, how can we get God to be with us? And the, the bad part of the answer is they decide, and we'll get to why it's bad, they decide, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is, would sit in the tabernacle, and in between, in, on the mercy seat, on top of this Ark, you've seen Indiana Jones, so you know exactly what it looks like. On top of this, on top of the Ark is where God's presence dwells with his people. So they decide if we bring the ark into the middle of our army, into this battle, then certainly he will give us victory. Now the part that's good about this answer is that they recognize that God's presence with his people has always been the distinguishing mark of God's people. God's presence with his people has always been the distinguishing mark of God's people. God's people have not always been the best people in the world. They've not always been the sharpest people in the world. They've not always kept the, all the rules that they're supposed to keep in the best way. Look at Abraham. I mean, he, he tried to pimp out his wife two times. 
Two separate times he tried to pimp out his wife to the king. I mean, this is, I mean, he, and then other times, like, he, he is not, he's not the, 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 the poster boy for being a good guy. All these people over and over again, we see them, they continually mess things up. But the, the distinguishing mark of God's people has been that he is with them. The distinguishing mark about Abraham was that God was with him. The distinguishing mark about Isaac, his son, was that God was with him. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was not a great dude. He tricked his dad into stealing his older brother's birthright. Like, how low do you have to be? And by the way, his mom wasn't great either, but how low do you have to be to dress up and trick your blind father into giving you your brother's rightful birthright and to give it to you. I mean, that is not a good dude. But later on, as he would go in, into, a, as he would flee away from Esau and he would end up with Laban, it tells us that he prospered there because God was with him. God was with him. That's been, always been the distinguishing factor when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers not a great family. And how much of a pain in his, in his side did he have to be in order to, for them to decide that the thing we should do is either kill him or sell him into slavery? They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house, and it says that God was with him, and he rose in prominence as a slave. Then he, that goes wrong. He ends up in jail, and he rises in prominence in the jail, and it tells us because God was with him. When Moses was out, he had killed a man in Egypt, ends out in the backside of the desert for 40 years as a shepherd. When he once had been a prince in Egypt, he ends up a, a shepherd. He sees the bush burning on the mountain that's not being consumed. He goes up to it, and God's presence is there. And whenever he goes back to Egypt, he goes a different man. Why? Because God was with him. And he was able to deliver his people because God was with him in a stronger way than the Egyptians' false gods were with them. As Israel goes to the, and they're stuck at the Red Sea, God parts the sea and leads them through and it crashes back over the Egyptians and he delivers them. Why? Because God was with them. He leads them through the wilderness as a cloud of, uh, during the day and a cloud of fire by night. Why? Why does he lead them through and enable, enable them to to enter into the promised land and defeat their enemies because God was with them. And so now when they're facing these Philistines who compared to Egypt is nothing, when they're getting defeat after defeat, the answer, the problem that they recognize, the true problem is that God was not with him. Now, when God is with his people, it doesn't mean that everything goes smoothly all the time. I mean, look at Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He ends up in jail. Multiple other examples. I mean, the, the Israelites themselves are led through the wilderness. They don't go straight into the promised land. They live in the wilderness for 40 days. They don't have food. God feeds them manna from heaven in order to, in order to feed them. It doesn't go easy for them in the wilderness. But the, the difference, the, the, the difference about God being with you isn't that everything goes right all the time. It's this sense of a, of a peace and a knowledge that no matter where you are, if things are going well or things are going poorly, you know, you have this knowledge that God is with me and I'm being led 
somewhere. I'm being led through this. He has something in mind for me and for this. And that makes all the difference in the world. Going through a difficult time by yourself and going through a difficult time with the sense of the knowledge that God is leading me through this for something and for himself and ultimately for me and for my good totally changes the experience. And that has been the great comfort for God's people through the ages. Many times have God's people suffered horrendously. And yet the comfort has been that God was with them because they knew that when God's presence is with us, he guides us. When God is with his people, he guides his people. He is leading us somewhere. Just as he led the Israelites through the wilderness, in the wilderness, but led them through the wilderness, he was leading them and guiding them. When Abraham left his home country and was wandering out into, to find some promised land, eventually that God had promised him, but he was wandering. It says that he left without knowing where he was going. Why? Because he had this sense of comfort and security, this faith, this knowledge that God was guiding him somewhere. Whenever we're, when God's presence is with us, it, we know that he's guiding us and also know that he provides for us. The Israelites knew this as they're looking at their defeat against the Philistines. They could look back at their history and see all the ways that God had guided them and had protected them and had provided for them. He provided for them. When they were in Egypt and they needed to get out, he provided a way of escape. And when they were in the wilderness without any food or water, he provided food from heaven and water from a rock. And if God is with you and you are with God, then you can rest in the knowledge that he will guide you and he will provide for you. If it needs to be water out of a rock in the desert, he will provide. He will not overlook his children whenever he is in, his, whenever he is in our midst and he is among us. When God's presence is with us, he will provide no matter what. It might be bread raining from heaven every morning to make you through to the next day, but he will provide. He will guide, he will provide, and then he will protect. We see that over and over again with his people. They were stuck in Egypt with no way to get out in the most powerful country on the face of the earth, and God provided a way supernaturally for them to be released from Egypt. And then when Pharaoh changed his mind and he brought his army, a part of the most powerful army on the face of the earth, not just large in numbers, but they, were, they, they had weapons that these slave Hebrews would not have when they are leaving Egypt as they're coming with their chariots and horses and spears and their iron utensils against them, weapons against them. He provides a way of escape. He protects them and guides them. As they are in the wilderness and they have these other armies, these other tribes that try to cross them who are more powerful than they are, he continually provides victory for them. We see it all through the Old Testament over and over again. When God is among his people, he guides them, he provides for them, and he protects them. So therefore, now when the leaders are there and they've just suffered a defeat and 4,000 or so people have died, they, they know that things are not going well for us. So therefore, we need to reach out and get God to help us. And they did exactly what many of us do when we find ourselves in trouble. We reach for uh, the comfort of some sort of 
uh, you know, uh, we, we fall away from God and then we decide, oh man, I, I gotta really, all right, things are not going well, my, my job's not going well, my money's not working out, my, my relationship with my wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend is not going well, like these things are, are not going, I'm, I'm hurting, There's, uh, my health is, I'm having issues. Then we reach out for these little things to help us. We're gonna pray harder, we're gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna be at church every, and I'm even gonna be there early. I'm gonna hear Dale give the announcements. I'm gonna, that's how early I'm gonna be here. Which, by the way, church starts before Dale gives the announcements. But anyway, regardless, like he, they say, I'm going to be here early. I'm going to be here a part of that. I'm going to sing. I'm gonna, not going to listen to other music. I'm going to only listen to Caleb. I'm going to, I'm going to sing. I'm going to pray in the car. And I'm going to really seek. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to stay up late. We make all these promises, all these things that we reach out for to, to try to bring them in, to try to fix, to find, find some way to how to, and this is the thing, how to figure out God, how to help, how to figure out how to get God to help me in my mess where I am. And we'd use these things to try to twist his arm and pull him to what we want him to do for us. That was the problem. That was the bad part of their answer. The right part was that God was not with them. The bad part is that let's find some way to twist his arm and bring him into, literally bring him into our situation so he has no other choice but to do what we want him to do. When, by the way, they had been ignoring him and doing their own thing for years and years and years. And how many times do we find ourselves in that situation? We've been doing our own thing, living life exactly the way I want to live it. Things get tough, things get hard. I realize the problem is that God's not coming through for me, so therefore I have to reach out and find some way some sort of rosary bead to finger, some sort of magic prayer to pray, some sort of performance that will get him to come to my side and help me. They were right in understanding that God was the solution, but they were incorrect in diagnosing what the real problem was or what the real cure was. They thought that the problem was that God wasn't with them in their fight, so therefore they need to bring this religious symbol along to secure God's blessing. But the real problem was that God wasn't with them, and he wasn't with them because they had turned away from him over and over again. So in that case, bringing the ark along was just a superstition. It was just some sort of rosary bead to finger, some sort of magic prayer to pray. And that result, bringing that along as their answer, resulted in greater loss for them. I know somebody, a friend of mine, who was having this, uh, a lot of pain. And they thought that the answer was to, to overcome this great pain that they were feeling in their body was to take pain medication. And so they took ibuprofen. The problem was they took so much ibuprofen that it literally ate a hole in their stomach. Literally. And so they diagnosed the problem halfway correct. I'm having pain. But they didn't diagnose what the problem, what the cause of that pain was. And so therefore their answer to fix it only made things worse. I experienced that about six or seven years ago. I didn't know. I had a problem with high blood pressure. 
And I, my, I was getting these headaches, and I thought my, my family has a whole history of having bad sinus problems, and it would, I would feel it right in here, right in my head. And so I thought the problem was I'm having these, I mean, I have a lot of really bad sinus problems. So I would take sinus medication, which I didn't know the underlying problem with the blood pressure was when I take the sinus medication, it makes that even go higher. My headaches were getting worse, and they was making the actual real problem even worse. And when they finally found out what is happening, because my nose started bleeding, I couldn't get it to stop. When they finally found out what was happening, they said, you're, you're, my nose started bleeding as a release valve to keep my brain from exploding from the blood pressure. I was trying to fix the problem, but it was the wrong problem. I was having pain, but the pain was because of sinus. The pain was because of something else. And we make things worse, like the Israelites did, when we try to fix the problem cosmetically. I'm going to pray this prayer, sing this song. I'm going to pray louder. I'm going to sing harder. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to be at church more. What happens when we do that is those things are just empty religious talisman. They're little religious, empty good luck charms. You may as well put a rabbit's foot in your pocket. Because God's arm will not be twisted to meet your call for help in your problem when your heart has been turned away from him. Because that's the real problem. Is the Israelites, God gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the ark. He gave them the Torah, which is the Bible they had at the time. That he gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them all of that, but they had been simply going through the motions with all of that for years. And it was just a simple, religious, empty, elaborate good luck charm for them. And so then when their feet are up against it, they decide to pull him in with the ark. And God says, I will not allow myself to be played. God will not allow himself to be, to be played. The purpose of God's presence isn't to bless what I want him to do for me. The purpose of God's presence is for him to be present among us as king and Lord and for our life to revolve around him and his presence, not his presence revolve around me and my wants. I am made and you are made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not for him to glorify us and enjoy us forever. And that's what we try to do when we try to make these little magic bullets, these little religious good luck charms to pull him into my deal. God's presence, it makes a huge difference when it's there and when it's not. And then God's presence, how is it lost? We see that their half a good idea doesn't end up very well for them. In verse four, so they had this defeat. They bring the ark into their midst from Shiloh. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant, of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli were there with the ark of the covenant of God, which by the way, if you know what's going on before, it's not a great sign. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. 
That's sort of like us, man, whenever things get, go wrong and we're like, man, I'm going to make this thing happen. I'm going to sing louder. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to do it more and more and harder and harder. And God's going to have to respond to me. And when the Philistines heard the noise, the shouting two miles away, they were they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They were afraid at first, and then, the, and then the Philistines decided, hey, we're afraid. They brought a god into the camp, and they knew enough of, they just thought it was a god. They didn't know it was only one god. They brought a god into the camp, and so they thought that they, they did know enough that this was the god who had delivered them out of Egypt. So they said, this is trouble for us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to double down. We're going to fight harder. We're going to come at them stronger and harder. And that's exactly what they did. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And this is how sound the defeat was. Israel fled, every man to his own home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And... The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons were killed. It, it really could not have gone any worse for them. So Eli is waiting back at Shiloh. It's about 20 miles away from where the battle had happened. And a man runs up to Shiloh, and Eli is he's waiting at the gate to hear, but he's blind. So he misses the man who runs in. The man runs into Shiloh and tells the town the news. There's been a great slaughter. We're defeated. The rest of the army is scattered. Eli's sons, the priests, are killed, and the ark is captured. And Shiloh wails at the sound, wails at the news. And Eli hears it and asks what has happened, and the man comes to him, and he tells him what has happened. And when Eli hears this, this is the beginning of one of the saddest parts of maybe all of scripture. When he hears it, verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. Just side note, our own sin often lends weight to our own destruction. Eli had been eating the food that his sons had been skimming off the people. And that's why he was fat. I mean, he was 98, so he probably couldn't survive much of a fall. But he was so large from skimming off the meat that did not belong to him that the weight of his fall broke his neck whenever he fell. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. There were complications in the birth, and the, at the time of her death, the women attending her said, do not be afraid, for you've born a son. So what they're saying to her is like the greatest the greatest honor for a woman in the Near East at this time would be to be able to bear a son. She bore a son at the end of her life, and so usually that woman would go with joy. I've borne a son. Even though I'm dying, I've, I've fulfilled my greatest duty. It's the greatest honor I could have. And verse 
At the end of that verse, she says, but she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod. The, the name Ichabod means no glory or where is the glory? For she said, the glory has departed from Israel. When he says the glory, that means God's presence has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. The people in the population of Shiloh, when Eli, when Phineas' wife hear the news, they, they, they mourn at the military loss. But the greater loss for them is that the fact that the ark was gone, the symbol of God's presence among his people. And she names her child Ichabod because the ark had been captured and therefore the glory had departed. But here's what they didn't still understand. That the problem wasn't that they had handled the ark incorrectly, which the ark should not have been taken into battle. Uh, Eli's son should not have been foolish enough to take it there. Uh, Eli should not have allowed it. It was a stupid, foolish thing to do. Well, the problem wasn't that they had handled the ark incorrectly. The glory had departed because they had, their hearts had turned away from God. Their hearts had hardened to the point that it seemed to them a good idea to bring the ark into battle. And that's what happens to us, is that our hearts get so hardened that things that are terrible ideas will all, all of a sudden seem to be decent and logical and good. And they lead to even greater destruction. Somebody from the outside could look in and say, that is stupid, but we will not hear it. We cannot hear it. We are so determined that this is the answer for our problem. And we do that when we reach out for these things, these religious talismans, these prayers, this service, this thing that I can do to get God, whatever it is that to get God to come through for me. And then when he doesn't seem to come through for me, when, when that house is foreclosed on or I lose the, my child or the, the bills aren't paid or I lose that job and I can't find another one or whatever that thing is, I'm, I'm 35 years old and I'm still single and nobody in sight, whatever the deal is for me that I can't quite seem to get God to come through and do what I need or want him to do, then one of two things happen. One is we either decide that God isn't real and we decide to bump that, I'm out of here. Or we decide to double down on our religious duties to try, we, therefore, that, what I, taking the ark didn't work, we gotta double down and do more. Now, praying for, for like three times a day didn't work. I got to pray six times a day. G getting, getting to church in time to hear Dale give the announcements wasn't good enough. I need to be there early. Maybe if I set up, maybe if I do whatever, maybe if I serve at New Directions, maybe if I help serve back in the back with the kids or I, or I do whatever, like whatever the thing is that enters into our mind to do, I'll double down on this and I'll finally get him to do what I want him to do. But both things, either leaving God or doubling down on our religious duties, both serve the same purpose. It keeps us, distracts us from the real problem, which is seeing the problem in our own hearts. The problem is that I'm not submitting and obeying to him. I'm not submitting to him or obeying him. That's the problem. My heart is turned far from him and I'm doing my own thing and expecting him to 
Jump into the middle. That's the, pre- that's the difference God's presence makes. It's, the, it's how it's lost. But then how is it recovered? If bringing the ark into the midst is not the answer, if praying more and reading, which all the way, praying and reading the Bible are both good things. Those are things that God gave, just like God gave the ark. Attending church is a great thing. Uh, listening and, and worshiping to, to worship music is an awesome thing. None of those things are bad, but when we use them as empty talisman, that's when it turns evil. If those are the answer, what is? Well, here's the fascinating thing to me. When God called his people and he made him a people under Moses as he delivered him, them out of Egypt and in the, in the wilderness, and God appeared, his presence appeared on the mountain and he spoke to Moses as a man face to face. When God was with him and spoke to him, in the covenant that God gave for his people, inside that covenant was both blessings and curses. Built into the covenant was that God knew that his people would turn away. He knew that they would turn away, and he built that, in, that knowledge into his covenant with him. I love Deuteronomy. It's Moses' like departing words to the people of Israel. And he spends most of Deuteronomy restating what God has done and restating the law that God had given them. And then towards the end, he, he says, here's what's going to happen. I've given you all this law. God has delivered you out of Egypt. And whenever you get into the promised land, you should not turn away from him, but you are. <laughs> he says it from the beginning before they even get into the promised land. Don't turn away, but you are going to do it when you get there. And he built into the actual, his address to them, that knowledge. Uh, in Deuteronomy uh, verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 11 That's not right. In verse 21, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity. He's saying that when you turn away in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And then in verse 24, he says, whenever that calamity comes upon you, whenever you turn away from me, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to, to, his, to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them. God whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. So the leaders of Israel had this, had this on hand to see why is God not delivering us. It's not because the ark isn't in our midst. It's because we've turned away from him and worshiped other gods and has served them and not served him. And therefore, all this calamity is coming upon us because he is not with us. That should have turned their hearts away. And then, and then he even, not only does he diagnose the problem, but he gives them, this is how you return. Verse one of chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind, 
among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples the Lord your God has scattered you. He lays out exactly how to return to the Lord and how to recover his presence. It's sort of the same thing that we were talking about last week in his word when God called to Samuel and he, uh, he listened and he submitted and he obeyed. It's really the same thing. He says, pay attention. You will, when you call them to your mind, all that the Lord God has done for you and return to him, when you obey all that I command, so we're gonna pay attention to the Lord and his word. I'm gonna turn my heart, pay a, turn my attention back to him, and I return to the Lord, and, and that's the idea of, of repentance, and I repent and turn from my way and worshiping my God and doing my thing and turn to him as the one and only true God, and then obey his voice in all that he has commanded us. Then we will return to the Lord. And then the good thing that we're going to see is that in 1 Samuel 7, I'm not going to cheat ahead to somebody else's passage, but in 1 Samuel 7, Samuel's actually going to lead the people of Israel to do exactly that, to pay attention to his word, to repent and turn away from the false idols to God, and to submit to him and to obey. But yet the problem is that they, every time they return to God, they can never keep it up. They return to God and they repent and then they turn away again, and then they return back to God and repent and turn away again over and over again. It just never seems to actually take. But this is where these promises that God gave to the Old Testament are so precious. In Leviticus, in the law that God gave them, he makes them a, a promise of something that's not going to happen in the Old Testament, that's something that's going to happen in the future. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul should, shall not abhor you, and I shall walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And Ezekiel, after Ezekiel saw the other low point in Israel's history, when Ezekiel saw the presence of God leave the temple, God gave Ezekiel this promise. He says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He makes them this promise, one day my dwelling will be with them and will not depart from them. And we see it fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the throne where God is seated and Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth is at his right hand. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold the dwelling place or that word that we covered last week, the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwells. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's presence with his people is perfected in Jesus. It is only in and through Jesus that we can find the ability to actually change our hearts, to turn away from false gods and false idols and turn 
to him. It's only through Jesus that where the, the, his word is caused to be light and life through us for the power of the Holy Spirit, where once it was foolishness, all of a sudden becomes precious to us. It's only through Jesus that we are granted repentance. So Paul says, you should pray that, I pray that God would grant them repentance. That means that we need even God to give us the ability to repent and turn away from sin and to turn towards him is only through Jesus' obedience, his perfect obedience, that makes us right, that we find the power to actually listen and submit and obey him. And when we do, through Jesus, we find his presence is dwelling in us and among us. And that is the distinguishing mark of God's people. So let us be a people of the presence. Let's be a people who seek to cultivate that presence. Not turn to empty ways to try to find ways to twist God's arm to get him to do what we want him to do, but where we submit gladly to him, where we see ways that he is calling us to see where our hearts are turned away from him and to turn back to him over and over again. The Christian's life is a life of repentance. Over and over again, turning away from sin to him so that his presence would be rich and sweet and powerful in each of our individual lives and in our midst together. When people see us and come into into our midst they should see and feel and sense the presence of God in our midst. And that only comes whenever we pay attention to his word, we repent and we obey. And that only happens through Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.